want to take a moment to introduce uh, our speaker this morning. Glad that Aaron Baker can be here. I know many of you know him. He's the pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church, and I'm thankful, Aaron, you can join us. Thankful for Aaron's friendship and faithful years of ministry. And also, it's appropriate, it's good that he can be here. Um, thankful for Aaron's commitment to church planning. And Covenant was the church that planted Lincoln Square 10 years ago, and so, so thankful for Aaron's generosity. We should like to say, but not all, not all pastors would be happy to send out uh, members and financial resources and staff outside of their existing church to help start new churches in the city, and Aaron's been committed to that throughout the, the experience, and so very thankful for that. So let's welcome uh, Aaron to be with us this morning. Well, thanks, Chad. Um, I want to... Yeah, I want to make a joke about how sometimes it's okay to let people go, like, <laughs> but none of you who came to plant this church, I would never say that. Um, <laughs> so let me pray. Uh, Father, uh, we have already sung together um, and confessed together that you hear our voice. You hear all of our voices, and that's amazing to think uh, that that's true. And so that's what we ask now, that you would hear our voice, even the ones who can't articulate exactly what it is that they need to hear or know or experience from you right now. Would you be happy to use this word that we're going to read together and talk about together to show us the grace of Jesus again, to show us our vocation, to show us the shape of our life together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so let me just start by saying I'm really, I feel incredibly honored to be a part of this uh, celebration, a part of your celebration. Um, honor is what I feel. I also feel a little bit crazy um, about it too, because it seems like, for me, it seems like just yesterday when Chad and I started talking about this, it was actually more than 10 years ago, and when we started you know, thinking, well, what does the future look like? Neither of us actually knew what our future would look like, and so it's just weird uh, to see, and amazing to see. It also makes me feel super old. That should go without saying. Um, but God has been really faithful despite us, I think, which is um, the story of the church from day one, to be honest with you. God is faithful. And the book of Acts is the story of the first Christians uh, from day one. But it's not uh, just flat history. The story of Acts, the story that gets told us in Acts, has a persuasive edge to it, and I think part of what the book of Acts does is it shows people like us um, how to bear faithful witness in the places where we are. That's our job. <laughs> you know, despite all of the other stuff that, that my church writes and the bulletin and you guys write and all that stuff, our job is to bear faithful witness to Jesus um, for one another and for our neighbors and for the life of the world. That's what our job is, to bear faithful witness to Jesus. Uh, and that means that sometimes we will bear faithful witness in a culture that is uh, indifferent. Sometimes we will bear faithful witness in a culture that is sometimes hostile to our faith. So I want to read a part of the story of the first Christians that will hopefully encourage us all to bear faithful witness together. Okay, But let me set the scene um, before we read that part of the story, it takes place in Jerusalem after Peter, one of the apostles, has healed a man who had been disabled from birth. This was a big deal in the city of Jerusalem. It captured a lot of people's attention, 
and the Sadducees, who are essentially the aristocracy of Jerusalem at the time, they become very, very, very annoyed at the apostles and the attention that they're gathering. And so they have a sit-down with a bunch of the other power brokers in that city, and they talk about what's going on. They talk about this pesky new movement of people who are following Jesus, who, by the way, they think is supposed to be dead, although they keep hearing all these rumors that he's not dead. Um, and the end result of that hearing was that they told Peter and John, stop talking about Jesus. Just stop talking about him. Enough. Peter and John, of course, ignore this. They talk about Jesus nonstop. And the result of that is that Peter and John and all of the other apostles get arrested. They get hauled off uh, to prison where they're waiting overnight for this hearing that's going to happen the next day. Okay, so this is... Uh, the part of the story that begins with the hearing. It's uh, Acts 5, 27 through 42. It's printed in your order of worship if you want to follow along. Or you can just listen as I read from Acts 5. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you to not teach in this name. Yet you're, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee of the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas arose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is God's word and it's given for our good. So a couple of months ago, my wife Allison and I uh, went out to dinner, uh, and about 20 minutes after we were seated, uh, another couple came and was seated at the table next to us. They were older than us, uh, and they were not married. Um, it was one of those uh, restaurants where the tables are super close together, and so they were really close to us, and we could overhear their conversation. And I confess that we really enjoyed hearing their conversation because they had this awkward uh, getting-to-know-each-other vibe coming off of them. Uh, they had obviously recently started seeing one another. 
So they dove right into the latest political headlines. Pretty impressive, and it was fun for us at least to, to, to listen to them feel each other out and to try to get that right mix of savvy smarts and ironic disinterest in the things that they were talking about. I mean, I've been out of that game for more than a century, or two, yeah, 25 years. I'm so glad, so glad I'm not in that game anymore. But it was fun to listen to. And then they, they switched to uh, religion. They switched to religion. And in just a couple minutes into that discussion on religion, this is what we heard. The guy said this. When the aliens come to take over Earth, I'm going to be so embarrassed that religion still exists. When the aliens come to take over Earth, I'm going to be really embarrassed that religion still exists. Not making that up. I don't think I can make that up. <laughs> and as this conversation went on, it became pretty clear that the primary referent in his mind for religion was not just religion in general, it was Christianity in particular. And so my mind started racing. And I'm not proud of all the stuff I thought, to be honest. Um, but my mind started racing, and I thought, I wonder if this guy would be embarrassed about the abolition of slavery. <laughs> I wonder if this guy would be super embarrassed about the end of apartheid, or if he'd be super embarrassed about the beginning of public uh, hospitals, if he'd be really embarrassed at civil rights. You know, any of these things that are really hard to imagine without the initiation and involvement of Christians in them. But mostly, I wondered about these aliens. <laughs> What did they look like? <laughs> Where did they come from and why, you know? And I wondered how those aliens would feel coming all that way and finding faithful Christians all over the world happy to know that they are forgiven, <laughs> happy to know that they are loved, and doing the best that they can with what they have to love God and love their neighbors. Because that's what they'd find, church. <laughs> that's exactly what they would find. They would find the church bearing faithful witness because the church, it is not going anywhere. And that's not because Christians are such a sterling lot of folks. That is for sure. The reason the church isn't going anywhere is because the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to his right hand, and together they sent the Spirit to people like us. The, the dur durability of this thing we call the church is not based on our faithfulness, it is based on God's power and faithfulness, and that is certainly not going to change if we find ourselves among people who are worried that aliens will find out that we <laughs> exist. Which is another way of saying the church is not going anywhere, even if it sometimes finds itself in a culture that is indifferent to the Christian faith or sometimes hostile to the Christian faith. The teacher Gamaliel, in that story that we just read, for reasons known only to him, said, give it time, and if it's from God, it will endure. And church, here we are. <laughs> and so, in this story, those first Christians lay down markers for us. Markers for what faithful witness looks like in a world that is sometimes indifferent and sometimes hostile. 
I think that's good for us to think about together as a family, as churches together. So the story starts with the apostles being hauled before the high priest for questioning, and I have to confess that I left some things out of that summary um, that I gave you before we read the passage, and the most important thing that I left out of that summary is what happened in the early morning hours of the apostles' prison stay. They're locked up in the clink, and an angel springs them. <laughs> so they just quietly leave, they make their way back to the temple, and just get back to preaching. So when the authorities wake up and they get together that morning and they gather together um, and summon the prisoners, they're embarrassed to find that there are no prisoners to summon. They have to send the captain of the guard back to the temple courts to bring them back. So things are tense. You know, they're tense all around because the authorities can't even uh, keep control over the easy stuff like keeping prisoners under lock and key. They feel stung. Things are super hot in that room, all right? And this is what the high priest says when they finally all get there. I don't know if you noticed it. He, he won't even let himself say the name Jesus. This is what he says. He says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So it's clear now that the authorities have made assumptions about what Peter and the rest of the apostles are doing. They assume that this, is really, this movement is really about insurrection and that their end goal is to supplant them and become the authorities in Jerusalem. All right, now, it is very easy. It's very easy to see why they would think that because number one, who doesn't want to grab power? Who doesn't want to pull the strings of power if they can? And two, because more than once, as Peter has retold this story again and again, he has indicated the leaders as the ones who handed Jesus over to be crucified by the Romans. So he's going to do it again in a minute. That's what the high priest means when he says, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. You want to make us look bad in front of the people. This is really important, church. <laughs> Peter is not pointing fingers at them. He is not trying to shame them. He is not trying to make anybody look bad. He, he doesn't exactly have that in him in this moment. I mean, you might remember Peter's story just a couple months before this. He had denied his friend he had denied ever even knowing Jesus when it looked like it was going to save his skin. And so Peter, and he was as crooked as they came, and he would be the first to cop to it. He knows a little something, though, about second chances. He knows a little something about grace. He knows a little something about forgiveness. And that is what he is preaching now the life-changing, restoring grace of Jesus. He is bearing faithful witness to that. And of course, the second thing that's wrong with the assumption of the authorities <laughs> is you know who doesn't want to grab any power? <laughs> you know who doesn't care about that kind of power? Peter and the rest of the apostles. They do not care at all about that kind of power. 
not even a little bit. The power that the Sadducees, the power that the high priests hold, doesn't mean a thing to them, which is pretty amazing to consider because up until very, very recently, that kind of power had mattered a lot to them. <laughs> a lot. If you read the back end of the Gospels, if you read the first chapter of Acts, you know they're kind of wanting that power. They kind of want that stuff, and they don't anymore. Jesus meets with them. He says, you guys have it all wrong. You're going to get power all right, <laughs> but it's going to be power to be my witnesses in this world. And now the apostles have access to, now they have communion with the power that hung the stars. <laughs> now they have access to and communion with the power that is making everything new. They don't care about that political power anymore. Finally. Finally. So Peter tries to make this as clear as possible when he says as an answer to the high priest, we must obey God rather than men. Now sometimes this is called the principle of Christian civil disobedience. Right? Uh, when any power tells you to do something that God says don't do, or uh, when they tell you not to do something that God says you should, then you have to break with that power and you have to go with God. And I want to say, sure, yes, absolutely, that's right. Obey God. But I wonder if it might be more helpful for people like us in places like this to see this as the principle of prop the proper Christian posture towards earthly power. This is like a picture of how to think about earthly power. Peter and the apostles had stopped caring about that kind of power in the best way possible, and I think that we need to learn from them together as we work together to bear faithful witness in Lincoln Square, in Bucktown, in Oak Park, in Austin, or wherever else God might find it fit to send us together. So let me put a really fine point on it, okay? I, I very much wish that the generation above mine had not worked so very hard at connecting the church to American political power. I wish that that had not happened. It has done very, very little good, and it has done lots and lots of harm to Christian witness in our world. Brad East teaches theology at Abilene Christian University. He recently wrote an essay for Comment Magazine called The Church and the Common Good. And there are two lines in this essay that really struck me. I'd like to read them to you. Okay, this is what Professor East says. When the church is made an instrument of ends other than its own, however good in themselves, the result is distortion of the church's life, of its faith, of its mission. The paradox being that when the church is least focused externally in the sense of the immediate consequences of this or that public action, it most benefits the societies in which it sojourns. When the church becomes a tool for some other end than its own, even if it's awesome, it distorts. But when the church does what we have been called to do by Jesus, regardless of worrying about how that might look in the public, there is a benefit to the society in which it sojourns. 
And I think this has proven true time and time again, not only in the American church, but in the church from its earliest days. And this is for sure what is happening in the story of the first Christians in the book of Acts. Church, you you are not instruments of some shabby, shifting political power. You are not instruments of some shabby, shifting cultural power. You are not. You are instruments of the power that hung the stars. You are instruments of the power that is making everything new. You are instruments, and you have communion with the one who said, as we heard in the Old Testament lesson, I laid out the earth all by myself. (laughs) This is the power with which we have communion. That's the posture that is correct towards earthly power. We must obey God rather than man. That's the posture that benefits this great, brusque, you know, brawling, stormy, husky city in which we sojourn, it is the posture that will most benefit the neighborhood of Lincoln Square. Continue to be the church and let the chips fall where they may. Don't worry about your level of influence. Your father makes the seasons change however he wants, and the great deeps listen to his voice. He will take care of whatever influence our churches need to have or don't need to have. Our calling is to be faithful as the church. It's hard enough as it is. Be faithful as the church. Faithful Christian witness in an indifferent world. So you know Peter... He knows this is like the stuff that will get him killed. (laughs) These are words that are going to get him killed. And so maybe that's why he goes on to speak the good news again to them, because he thinks, well, maybe this is my last chance, I guess. So in verse 31, he reminds them of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And then he says this really amazing thing about Jesus' ascension. He uses this really striking language. He says, God exalted Jesus to his right hand as leader and savior. Um, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. He is leader and savior. Now, this is the first two times, first time that these two words are used for Jesus in the book of Acts. Um, Savior, of course, is the readily accessible one. It's the way Peter has been talking about Jesus from the very beginning, right? Jesus is the one who steps in and he takes the guilty verdict that is not really his, right? That's savior, He takes the guilty verdict that isn't his. He's the one who steps in, who takes the blame for cowards and deniers and fools like Peter and you and me, right? That's our hope. That's Peter's hope. He is our Savior. And that's the name that gets used for Jesus all over the New Testament. But this other name, leader, it's only used four times in the New Testament. It's really difficult to know how it should be translated, and all our English translations can't decide. Sometimes it's prince, sometimes it's captain, sometimes it's champion, sometimes it's pioneer, sometimes it's hero. And I love that. <laughs> because what Peter is saying here is that Jesus is the one enthroned. He is the prince. He is the hero. He is the champion. His is the kingdom. His is the power. His is the glory, not ours. And Peter and the rest of the apostles and all of us Christians are just following along behind Jesus into the vocation that he has made us for, which is to be faithful witnesses. So here's what's so striking about it, um, is the way that Jesus becomes the champion, the way that he becomes the hero, 
the way that he becomes the pioneer. It's totally counter to how we usually think about those words. Because he becomes the champion, the leader, by dying. Paul, Peter makes that really clear. He does it by giving up his power. He does it by laying down his power. He does it through the means of death. He sets aside his power for the good of the other. He lays down his power for your good and for mine. And it was probably very strange for these powers that be to hear Peter say something like this. You know, because who gives up power when they have it? I mean, really, who gives up power when they have it? Who lays aside power and takes the hit? I mean, they know how Jesus died. They know how he died, like a common criminal in the cruelest way possible. So to talk about him as the champion, the leader, the hero, it's nonsense to them. It is foolishness to them because most people do all that they can to hang on to power and to employ it for their own ends. But church, this is another marker that's being laid down for faithful Christian witness in the world. Whatever power you and I might have in the places where we might have it, whatever influence we might have, whatever sway we might have in the places where we might have it, it has been given to us to be used for the good of our neighbors, for the good of the world. It has been given to us in order that we would lay it down for the good of others, for the life of the world. And so that way of, the way of being in this world is deeply threatening. It's deeply threatening to the powers that be. And sadly and predictably, Luke says that they hear this and they are enraged and they want to kill him. Kill them all. Wipe it out. We can't compete with that. <laughs> and that's when Gamaliel steps in to calm things down. He's this respected teacher. He's got a ton of social capital. He starts telling the story of these two other men and their movements, men named Theudas and Judas the Galilean. They come onto the scene. He says they advance claims. They get all these followers. Then they die. And then what happens? You know, the following just goes away. And so these stories were well known to everyone who was in that room. And the point was as clear as it was pragmatic. Keep away from these men and let them alone. And time will tell. I don't know what this guy's motives were. I mean, it's possible that he was trying to seek the truth, that he was really wondering, is this guy Jesus resurrected? I mean, that would change everything. <laughs> it may also be that he was just savvy enough to know that killing the apostles would have further alienated his power from the people's power. I don't know. Maybe it was both. But it was enough to convince those who needed convincing. So they took his advice but not without getting their licks in. Not without getting their licks in. They beat the apostles. And they said, like we told you before, stop talking about Jesus. Stop it. And this beating 
made the apostles rejoice. (laughs) It is completely absurd, church. It made them rejoice, not because they like getting a beating, but because they counted themselves worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. (laughs) For the name. I'm certain they heard the echo of Jesus' words, Jesus' teaching that we heard in the gospel lesson that Gina read. When Jesus says, blessed are you when they hate you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name on account of my name, rejoice in that day. (laughs) Rejoice in that day. And so you know the command to stop talking about Jesus was predictably ignored. In fact, Luke tells us every day in the temple and house to house, they just kept talking about Jesus nonstop. And these church are the markers of faithful witness in a world that is sometimes indifferent and sometimes hostile to our faith. A proper Christian care about earthly power. (laughs) A willingness to lay down our power our sway, our influence for the life of the world, and a holy joy in taking it on the chin for the name. (laughs) The name who is the power who hung the stars. The name who is the power who is making everything new again. This name has given people like us everything that we need to bear faithful witness in this city and in this world. Amen.